2: Hey, everybody. Tonight, we're debating creation versus evolution, and we are starting right now with Dr. Thompson's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Thompson. The floor is all yours.
0: All right. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm glad that uh, I was able to come back to Modern Day Debates and talk about this topic that I'm so passionate about. So uh, let me tell you a little bit myself. I'm going to share my screen first, and hopefully you can see that. All right. So a little bit about me. Um, let's see. I think it needs to be resized. Is that... Great. All right. So uh, I am Chris Thompson. I'm an assistant professor of neuroscience at Virginia Tech. And I can imagine, you know, one thing that you might be wondering, like, why would a neuroscientist be interested in this? Well, uh, in this topic, um, I do have a bachelor's of uh, science from the University of Illinois in, um, in ecology, ethology, and evolution. Now that doesn't make me an expert in evolution. I am not an evolutionary biologist. I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I do study how hormones shape the development and plasticity of neural circuits in a wide range of species. I do this in a wide range of species because animals and humans share a common ancestor. So I can learn things from the animals that I do work with and I can understand how that applies to human health and uh, the human condition. so the other thing, of course, is that um, my the views that I expressed tonight are going to be my own and do not reflect the views of Virginia Tech. Now, a little bit about this debate. Now, this issue is not about science. This is a debate about um, creation and evolution that touches on scientific topics, but it's not about science. It really isn't. This is a theological debate between a worldview that requires a literal interpretation of the Bible and a worldview that does not require that interpretation. The majority of people all over the world do not start with the first principle that every single word in the Bible must be 100% factual or true. They just don't. In fact, many religious people see the Bible as allegory and metaphorical. Most accept that evolution is an accurate working model of the history of life on earth. It's just uh, religious fundamentalists that start with the first principle that the Bible must be 100% true. They start there, they go out into the world, and then they They uh, um, cherry pick evidence to fit their worldview. Now, what are the differences between evolution and creationism? Evolution, we believe that there's common descent with modification. We believe that there's a universal common ancestor. We have a mechanism to explain that change over time. We, we, you know, natural selection is a very powerful non-random mechanism described by Darwin and elaborated by others since then on heritable traits through DNA the earth is old it's around 4.6 billion years old that's not really necessary to believe in evolution but it's just another component of this whole debate and of course there's you know we explain biogeography you know where animals are located across earth and overall geology uh that's explained by natural mechanisms not supernatural ones now creationism they have a belief that there are kinds okay they tend to be a bit fuzzy on what that means Um, that are specially created de novo all at once. Now, as far as a mechanism by which creation occurred, um, is there a reasonable testable hypothesis or mechanism beyond magic and the supernatural? I don't think that there is one. You know, they believe the earth is around 6,000 years old. um, And so they believe in a very, very young earth, which is very inconsistent with the evidence. And then as far as biogeography and geology, they believe that these things are explained by Noah's flood. Now, the lines of evidence that support evolution, they're numerous. I can go through all these different things, the fossil evidence, comparative morphology, genetics, biogeography. I don't have enough time to go through all these things. It's just way too much to cover in about 10 minutes. So what I'm going to talk about tonight, or at least right now, is genetics. So as far as the genetic evidence goes, what we can see is that organisms with recent common ancestors have more similar DNA than those with more distant common ancestors. So I'm gonna walk through that and the logic behind it. So one thing about genetics is that we can look at um, uh, stretches of DNA and compare it across different species to see differences and those differences. So there might be subtle differences in the sequence, right? So DNA is made up of nucleotides, A, G, Cs, and Ts. And there may be differences between two different species we refer to this phenomenon as a molecular clock. This allows us to estimate when there was a last common ancestor. So now many stretches of DNA, they will accumulate mutations over time at a relatively constant rate. So what I have here, this is a, an image I took from this uh, website. This is an excellent website to get like nice, brief, um, clear explanations about evolution and how it works. I encourage you to check that out. Um, So, you know, what we would say is the common ancestor maybe had a stretch of DNA. Now, most animals have billions of nucleotides. What we're showing here is just 10. So 10 nucleotides here, right? So this is a sequence, a little stretch of DNA in some ancient common ancestor. Now, a population may have split. Uh, Let's say one part went west, another went east, and they split. And so with that split of a population, you're going to have speciation. And those different populations are gonna accumulate mutations into that stretch of DNA because there's just random mutations that occur. And so what you're gonna see is that you're gonna have like, you know, in this case, this population, there's a T that emerges where the G should be. And here there's a G where the T should be over here. And then over time, there's gonna be more and more mutations that accumulate until you get to today where we can actually sequence individuals from different species. And we can compare the sequence. We'll see that the sequence is largely similar, but that there will be some differences. And that with those differences, we can estimate just with the, um, you know, a, a constant rate of mutation and knowing how long a generation is, we can determine when the last common ancestor was. So more recent common ancestors will have more similar DNA and more distant common ancestors, like 50 million years ago, are gonna have more substitutions. We have evidence that supports this. So here's data showing pairwise nucleotide substitutions among 17 pairs of mammalian species from seven different gene products. This is plotted against the date of divergence as estimated from the fossil record. Okay, so one point here is how uh, marsupials would compare to placental mammals, right? So that's the, I know that that's what this point is from this data set. And the thing is, you can see that there's, this is a linear data set. So, number of nucleotide substitutions is shown on the y-axis, and you can see if the divergence was relatively recent, there are fewer nucleotide substitutions in this uh, seven seven gene products. But as you go farther and farther back in time, there's more and more nucleotide substitutions. You know, many of them nu- just relatively neutral or just you know non beneficial mutations, and that this is going to lead to differences. And so, and what we can estimate the divergence from that. So this allows us to make phylogenetic trees. And so there's many lines of evidence that do support phylogenetic sorting, including genetic evidence. And here's a map of, you know, this is a phylogenetic tree of some basic sort of uh, animals that that are commonly used as, uh, as animal models. So humans and chimps have a common ancestor around 10 million years ago. Mice have a common ancestor with humans and chimps around 90 million years ago. And then humans and chimps and mice have a relatively distant common ancestor with chickens and say also reptiles around 310 million years ago and so on and so forth. And we can do these comparisons and make these estimations and it's very consistent with the fossil record. (laughs) So the thing is that the fact that genetic sequences result in this pattern, this precludes divergence of animals from Noah's Ark. So why am I focusing on Noah's Ark? You might be saying, Dr. Chris, what's up with that? We're talking about creation, right? We should be talking about the Garden of Eden. Sure, all right, so the Garden of Eden, you had um, Adam and Eve, and you had uh, you know, animals created by God at that time. Um, but the thing is, that's not the genetic bottleneck. A genetic bottleneck is when the population becomes so small that now all variation is reduced to a very, very small population. And that's down here. The real genetic b- bottleneck is at Noah's flood. And that's true for humans as well, okay? So all humans and animals were killed around 4,400 years ago, according to creationists. And that's where there's a genetic bottleneck. And so, you know, Genesis 7, 14 says that Noah had to collect all the animals in pairs. Um, the livestock, they're considered clean. I don't necessarily consider livestock to be clean, but he had seven pairs of those. Um, they were all brought onto the ark and that included dinosaurs, right? Even dinosaurs are brought onto the ark, right? If you're gonna believe that the Bible is is literally true. So creationists claim that Noah had two of every animal, male and female, of each kind of animal on it, you know, kind in quotes, on the ark 4,400 years ago. They claim that all the biodiversity that we see has emerged from those original kinds. The reason why they say this is because you can't say that Noah had all the species on the ark, because that would mean he would have to have had, like, around 6,000 different species of amphibians or 12,000 different species of reptiles. Instead, they say that there was like a frog kind or a snake kind, and all the biodiversity we see from that would have emerged from that single pair of organisms 4,400 years ago. Okay, so I hope you can understand this. This means that actually creationists and myself, we actually have a lot in common. We believe in evolution as do they. They believe that you can get speciation. But the thing is they believe in hyper evolution. They believe that speciation can occur so fast that you can have thousands of speciation events happening in the few years after Noah's flood. Um, this clearly indicates that there's just not been enough time for this level of speciation. It's impossible. Um, this is just one line of evidence why, why creationism isn't true. Um, and um, you know. so I'm happy to get into other lines of evidence we will talk about that as we go on um so i'm happy that i'm here uh you know with t-rock and i'm happy to turn it over to t-rock at this point so that is
2: it for me thank you very much for that opening and want to let you know folks if it's your first time here at modern day debate we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science religion and politics we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from i'm your host james coons and hey If you didn't know we have a lot of big debates coming up so for example at the bottom right of your screen we are thrilled about this upcoming debate that we have not even put up yet this is brand new we just booked it matt dillahunty and stuart nettle will be debating on whether or not christianity is rational as you can see at the bottom right that's going to be this friday you don't want to miss it hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it and with that thanks so much t-rock for being with us as well the floor is all yours for your opening statement
1: Thank you, James, and thank you to everybody for tuning in. Um, I take it you can see my screen? Yes. Okay, real quick, a little bit about myself. I come from a uh, an engineering and manufacturing background, um, not a quote unquote scientific background. Um, although there is quite a bit of science that goes into engineering and manufacturing both, um, and it is studied at the university level. Um, so it's not like I'm without a uh, an educational background to support my position. But um, be that as it may. Um, my position is young earth creation. The earth is roughly 6,000 years old, plus or minus uh, 200 years. And so I'm here to defend the, the um, biblical historical account. Um, I do believe it is it is absolutely scientific, absolutely supported by um, scientific data. Um, to be honest with you, what I heard a little while ago in, in uh, Chris's opening was that this was a theological discussion, not scientific per se. To be perfectly honest with you, I had not heard that before then. Um, I came mainly prepared to talk about the science. Uh, most of Chris's presentation was science-centered, not theological. So um, either way, um, it sounds like we're kind of along the same lines. So with that, I'm going to jump into this. Um, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. <clears throat> if evolutionists use good arguments, they would be creationist. It's my own humor um, evolution is mythology which i thoroughly believe it's the modern uh, mythology okay um, some important differences creation versus evolution so in creation there is It is purposeful. It is intentional Um, rapid processes. You notice that some of my text is in red and some is in black. The red is is intended to delineate between what's unique to creation or what's unique to evolution. Um, So if it's in black, it's kind of a shared um, um, region of their approach. So rapid processes max six to ten thousand years. But like I said, my personal position is six thousand years, plus or minus about two hundred separate ancestry. Basic body plans don't change. Change. Um, evolution, on the other hand, has no direction. It's random. It's very slow processes um, used, at least used to justify. You notice the rapid and slower in black, because <clears throat> as creationists, we obviously um, are perfectly fine with very slow processes. And the uh, evolutionist is fine with very rapid processes. Um doesn't really delineate between the two positions. Um evolution um, believes in a 4.5 billion year earth and a 13.8 billion year universe um, for the age, universal common ancestry and drastic body plan changes over time. Okay, so <clears throat> why do people think that evolution is science? Is it because it's evidence-based? Is it meticulous methodology? Is it data-driven? Um, does it withstand the test of time? The, are the methods consistent with design and development? Um, Is it peer-reviewed? Is there no conflicting data that renders two possible but mutually exclusive interpretations? Um, I'm going to answer those real quick. Evidence-based? Obviously, yes, it's it's based, has some root in evidence. Uh, But then so does the creation position. Is it meticulous methodology? I would say yes, it it definitely um, refers to a methodology that is meticulous. Is it data-driven? Yes, it does have data behind it. Um, We need to explore exactly what that means later probably. Um, Does it withstand the test of time? Absolutely not. If you don't like the evolution story today, stick around, it'll change. Um, methods are consistent with design and development? Absolutely not. There are two different approaches to origins versus real-time uh, material, medical, and technology um, advances, um, and, and I'll talk about that later. Is it peer-reviewed? Yes, there is a peer-reviewed system. Um is it perfect? Absolutely not. Does it let a lot of garbage through? Absolutely yes. Um, and and doesn't even have to be origins-based um, in, in terms of how garbage makes it through the peer-review system. Um, that actually happens in the medical field, for example, is quite common. Um, no conflicting data that renders two possible but mutually exclusive interpretations. Absolutely, yes, there is a lot of conflicting data. And we'll hopefully get to talk about that in a little bit. So why do people think that creation isn't science? Is it because intelligence can't create life? An intelligent designer can't communicate with people? There's no data. A very modern idea that didn't exist in the distant past. Methods are inconsistent with design and development. No peer review. Faith-based. Going to answer those questions real quick. Intelligence can't create life. Obviously, the evolutionists don't think that because that's what experiments like Miller-Urey and and so on and so forth, forth, more modern experience are exactly what they they attempt to do um, in some settings. An intelligent designer can't communicate with people. That makes no sense. Um, why Why do the evolutionists sometimes refer to panspermia uh, and other mechanisms like that? Uh, look for uh, intelligent life outside of our galaxy or outside of our solar system, as it were. Um, they obviously think that an intelligent designer can communicate with people. Um, is it because there's no data? Absolutely not. Um, one of the key um, points to make about this whole discussion is that you don't have different... Evidence than I do. We all have the same evidence at our disposal. Whether you accept it or not, that's a different story. Um, creationists often get accused of cherry picking data. I would say that's absolutely false. We welcome just about every shred of data. We every shred of of evidence we can get. I'll put it that way. When you talk about uh, exactly what data might entail, but is it a very modern idea that didn't exist in the distant past? Absolutely not. Um, it's been the default position of everybody from the time that uh, the Bible was written in any particular era you know whether you're talking about the the Pentateuch or the uh, the prophets or all the way through the New Testament that's pretty much the biblical position from any given uh, narrator or, or character's perspective is that is that um, the literal, creation of genesis is the truth. Um, Methods are inconsistent with design and development. No, they're not. They're actually much more consistent with design and development specifically. And I'm just going to mention this quickly. We can talk about the details later. But deep time extrapolation versus um, interpolation, um, they're mutually exclusive ideas when it comes to origins and material sciences. For example, you cannot use deep time extrapolation to do material science. It, It just does not work. It's a known failure in in science and so the creation position is that with origins we use interpolation not deep time extrapolation um no peer review absolutely not true there is absolutely peer review as a matter of fact um, creation is published quite frequently in the open literature and so they're technically using the same peer review system for much of what we believe as the secular community uses for the evolution position is it faith-based that's a long discussion i'm not going to go too far into that except that i will say that um, almost never have i heard an evolutionist give a proper rendering of exactly what faith is so is it faith-based i will say yes but i seriously doubt very many people at all um, understand exactly what biblical faith is it tends to be rendered in a very modern context and very inaccurate at that so um is evolution actually science well extreme appellation extrapolation for dating methods says uh no it's incompatible with how you design and build and with the limitations in in uh, like i said medicine uh, technology and material uh, development no acknowledgement of primordial daughter products this is a big um a, a big deal to me when it comes to radiometric dating because it's like every single um radiometric sample that's taken the it's rendered as if the uh, the daughter product could only have come by radioactive decay without giving thought to what process created the elements in the first place and whatever that process was I don't care whether you're an evolutionist or or a creationist whatever that process was it certainly created both parent and daughter simultaneously but Acknowledging that kind of renders radiometric um, dating useless because you don't know what the starting point is supposed to be and able to uh, analyze samples can't account for existence of heavy elements, particularly as it relates to planet building what processes created the uranium that is on the earth today for example that's what I was just talking about. Um, I will submit that there is not a, an evolutionist alive that knows what processes created the uranium that's in our our uranium ore mines on earth today. um, Ignores fundamental physics when conflicting data is apparent. For example, observed erosion rates over deep time, lunar recession rate, magnetic field decay, etc. speak volumes against the idea of millions or billions of years. An absolute standard dating method does not exist. Every dating method for deep time Timelines beyond accepted archaeological standards is cross-checked against another method that has to be cross-checked against something else. So there is no absolute dating there. If there were, the the, the proof text would be that you could have one particular method that would always work and never fail and never have to be quote-unquote calibrated against some other um, parameters. Okay, <clears throat> a couple uh, keynotes for... Uh, evolution, deep time can never be demonstrated. Nobody can live long enough to see what a million years looks like or what it does to the environment or to biology or anything else. Um, radical body plan changes over successive, excuse me, <clears throat> over successive generations can never be demonstrated um, because in the evolutionary uh, fundamentals, it takes too long. Fundamentally, there is no technology that can ever be developed based on the exclusive characteristics of the evolutionary paradigm. Um, because because things make it different are deep time, you can't use that to develop uh, technology, um, you can't use uh, unguided random processes to develop technology, and you can't expect your technology to basically change itself drastically over said deep time time okay so ultimately nothing about deep time or evolution can ever be demonstrated because that would require the use of principles exclusive to the creationist paradigm <clears throat> james if i'm going long please let me know because i'm not timing myself here
2: you got it got about another minute or so
1: Thank you. Okay. Uh, Converging lines of evidence. Creation timeline is based on independent methods that aren't calibrated against each other. So cold subducted slabs um, is one thing completely independent of Earth's magnetic field decline, completely independent of ocean salinity, completely independent of lunar recession population metrics, dinosaur soft tissue, presence of carbon-14, et cetera. Any one of those doesn't require on one of the others as, as a justification for, um, for using it. And, and keep in mind, too, that we're not using these as dating methods per se. What we're actually using them for is get checks against other methods that might be used to try and date something. Evolutionary timeline is based on de- dependent methods that are calibrated against each other which basically gives you a a rubber ruler now these some of these are not directly connected to each other but when you span deep time you have to make jumps from say carbon 14 to oxygen isotopes and varves to and ice cores radiometric dating and geology and so forth so so there's kind of leaps in between there so it's not like radio non-biological radiometric dating is calibrated against carbon 14 because it's not um, nevertheless there's a chain there so radiometric dating typically um, re- references geology as its backdrop so with that i'm going to stop and yield my time so we can enjoy an open discussion
2: thank you very much for that opening as well and before we jump into the open conversation do want to say dear friends thrilled to have you here we are excited to let you know if you didn't know about this we are moving over onto TikTok as we think this is a great opportunity for us to expand modern day debate and ex- exposure in terms of bringing more people to this neutral platform so do want to let you know I'm going to put that TikTok link in addition to the description box I'm going to pin it at the top of the chat, and that way, if you have a TikTok, please do follow us there. Once we get to a thousand followers, we unlock the ability to live stream our debates there, which will be huge. So, thanks for your support, and with that, thanks so much, Dr. Thompson and T-Rock. The floor is all yours for open dialogue. Yes, yeah, Dr.
1: Thompson. Chris, you're mute.
0: Yes, I am. All right, I am unmuted now. I do that a lot. So uh, hey, great. So I, I have some questions for you, T. Rock. So um, you, so you confirm that you believe that the Earth is six thousand years old. When when do you date the flood event? About how
1: you had it around forty four hundred oh. years ago.
0: Okay, and do you, so I, as I kind of alluded to in my opening. Um, I feel like creationists often have kind of a fuzzy definition of kinds do you okay. want to tell us what kinds are
1: oh absolutely that's that's a, a very important part of the discussion um and just just a quick backdrop on that i've heard a lot of this discussion that you're alluding to in the in the uh creation evolution arena and and what i gather from um evolutionist is that they they a lot of them deem the idea of kind useless in biology is that your take i mean I as as a term,
0: yes. Now I sort of think that it it's it feels like it's it's like uh, taking our um you know our uh lim- um the nomenclature that we use scientific nomenclature for a defining species as perhaps at the genus or maybe the family level and that that maybe is a kind. I guess I'm not entirely sure because I hear people talk about like the wolf kind or you know other kinds and. Sure. Mm -hmm. so
1: so so just to be clear so so we've got these two different concepts we've got kind versus species they're obviously very different from each other right so my personal take is the concept of species is very useful in in everyday conversation and in in biological research that kind of thing and the reason it's useful is because just by the species name it informs you of things like size color um habitat that it it um abides in that sort of thing right sure and and so it is useful for that uh reason however i also find it extremely um unscientific um mainly because in, in in a in a particular regard let me put it that way like i said i do find it useful in a scientific context but there's a context in which it's completely worthless to me and that is that um for example if you look at a a pit bull and a chihuahua today you mm-hmm. know they're not separate species they're separate right breeds of the same species. Right? That's right. However, if you had never seen a chihuahua and never seen a dog and never seen a, a, a pit bull and you only found their fossils, you would automatically conclude that they were different species.
0: Um, so I, I don't know if you would necessarily do that. I mean, dogs have certain morphological features that are gonna be consistent with being a canid, right? So even a, a, the, the skull of a chihuahua and the skull of a pit bull still share those same fundamental features that make it a canid. So at the very least, okay, maybe we call them different species, perhaps, if you just happen to see those. Uh, well, I mean, if, if you saw one- But you example, definitely know that they're, with they're, they're I suppose, within a kind, is that what you mean? Then? Well, like,
1: I, I, I suppose you as, as an evolutionist would categorize them in perhaps the same genus. Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, because okay, they okay. would have, uh, they would have canid features. Uh, they both but have canid features, and that's very clear.
1: The historical trend, though, is absolutely that they would be called different species. I, I, I would have a hard time thinking yeah, maybe. disagree with that. But sure. Uh, and I think
0: that you can find some incongruent. I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because so many species that, as we define them from the fossil record, it's dependent upon. Uh, you know not like necessarily a wide range of examples it might be dozens or hundreds if we're lucky um and of course we have some examples where we can find thousands and we can actually look at individual variability within a given species but you know for like the hominids we have dozens and dozens of examples for certain species and it's sometimes can be somewhat tough to say is this um you know part of this species or that species based on the fossil evidence You know, especially, you know, I I would say that you have a valid point in that there can be a range within a given species.
1: So Um, I I guess, mm -hmm. I guess dinosaurs make a good backdrop for me because um, I I think. uh, I think there's a, a wide inaccurate accurate perception out there that that there's sort of a trophy hunting thing among scientists to get to name a particular new species or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we can literally go find um, fossils that are practically identical to each other, but because they're found either in different regions of the world or, you know, different depths or whatever, they end up with different species names. No, that that's not how that works. No, that, that historically that has happened.
0: No, 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 definitely not. Like you're not going to find uh virtually identical sp- fossil specimens, uh, whether they're just gonna end up being speciated. <laughs>
1: I think, I think Um, at the very least you can recognize that there are morphological differences based on say adolescence versus adult or, or early um, juvenile development and, and dimorph, sexual dimorphism between male and female. If you had never seen one of the others, I mean, a classic example, another one, just like the dog example is say deer. So it's well known, of course, that the doe has no antlers and the, and the buck does, but the, but the buck sheds them. So it's like, if you found An identifiable buck in the fossil record, but had never seen one in real life, and it and you found it without antlers, you would very likely call it a different species than one you found with antlers.
0: Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, Um, because we know there there definitely are examples of fossil species where we know like there's males and females, and Mm -hmm. we can identify them from the evidence that that these are males and females. Now. The thing that I'm interested in, though, is that um, so your model is that you have all animals. So so you don't believe that Noah had all species on the ark, right? you like you believe that he had kinds. Correct. Okay. so give me an example of what you're talking about.
1: Like Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let me give a, a, a comprehensive idea of what a kind is. Yeah. It, it, it's super simple really. Um, any any two um, animals that can potentially or actually interbreed with each other. and so it, it only becomes um, obscured. so there there's a concept of ring species and we'll talk about that in a minute but mm-hmm. but but for but kind of working um, from the beginning and, and going backwards, you see two animals, let's say a gray squirrel and a red squirrel and let's say you know that they can interbreed with each other then you know they're the same kind Um, but let's say you've got a gray squirrel and a south american variety and i I don't know a whole lot about squirrels but it's just just an example you get there are there are south american varieties of squirrels that you look at and you go oh that's plainly what i would call a squirrel right but let's say it can't interbreed um or or let me let me back up a little bit let's say you've never observed that species interbreed with a north american species right and then you might conclude that they're they're they you conclude that they're different species but you have a an, an instinct that they probably could interbreed and and so maybe a better example is like in the cat family where where you know for example lions and tigers can breed right and you yeah. know that that um, leopards and cheetahs for example can breed and you know that leopards and lions can interbreed but you don't necessarily know i I don't know that this is true or not but it's it's just an example but let's say let's say it's a fact that lions cannot interbreed with cheetahs but they can with tigers and tigers can with leopards and Mm -hmm. leopards can with cheetahs right so this is sort of the concept of the ring species but because there is a chain just like we do in in like algebra a a equals b and b equals c therefore a equals c that's what we're doing with the kind so we know that a lion and a cheetah are the same kind because there is an interbreedability chain between them and the cheetah and indeed it traces from the lion all the way down to the common house cat um different different species
0: but i don't think that we have that evidence for cats um and i'm well and also for the record r- red squirrels and gray squirrels cannot interbreed
1: okay fine that's but you, you see what i'm getting at though um, i mean
0: kind of except that i think that you're being a little too glib with this idea of of interspecies uh, ability to breed um in fact i think it's pretty limited so you know i'm wondering like um Okay. So do you, for instance, let's say bears, right? Do you think like there was a bear kind on the, on the ark? Sure. Okay. So that means that the, the bear species we have today came from that one bear kind, right?
1: Well, and and so that's another minor, uh, another, well, not minor. There's another non insignificant point. Um, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that there's more than one bear kind. For example, there are marsupial wolves, right? And then there are sure. um, there are placental wolves. Right. I'm perfectly fine with the idea that that's two separate kinds that you have to trace their their um, pedigrees independently of each other. That's that, that's fine. So with bears, I'm I'm fine with the idea that there's more than one bear kind. Okay, so that means so you're fine with that
0: idea. Well, I would, sure give me a prediction do you think that noah had one bear kind or multiple bear
1: kinds i i my gut instinct tells me that there was probably only one but there may be two because when you when you start looking at like the pandas and the um what's the other there's a there's a red panda that's like a miniature version right and and again yeah, it's not a bear though Okay. Related okay. But either way, my point is is that if I knew those details, I might would make a a, a slight uh, difference. But but again, it's to me, it's it's trace the the pedigree as much as you possibly can. So if I can say, for example, that a a Kodiak can interbreed with a polar bear, and a polar mm-hmm. bear can interbreed with a with a grizzly, and so on and so forth, if I can make a chain to a panda to it to a, the giant pandas then i would call them the same well, we can, kind. we
0: can barely get pandas to breed with themselves sure. so the pandas definitely cannot breed with other bears <laughs> so um so okay that's interesting and i'm glad that we're talking about the bears because I, I i'm i hope you can bear with me i wanted to actually share uh, a slide with you a couple of slides if i could bring that up um okay so uh hold on one second do this, nope, there we go, and share. Okay, so hopefully that is up.
2: Crystal clear.
0: Um, yep. Okay, Um. all right. So there are eight different species of living bears. Here's a list of them. We got the polar bear, the brown bear, the American black bear, the Asian black bear, uh, the sloth bear, the sun bear, the spectacle bear and the giant panda, which is a, a type of bear. Okay. Um, so if all eight species are derived from th- like the two bear kind animals, right? There's a male and a female on Noah's Ark. Um, and then that should be evident in molecular clocks. Like, so that's and, what I talked about.
1: And um, you're talking about DNA specifically?
0: Yeah, DNA, right? Because obviously bears have DNA, right? We can look, talk about morphologically. You can talk about how they interbreed, but I'm talking oh. about DNA. Okay. So one thing about this is that, okay, so there's been studies to look at this. And if they looked at the genetic sequence of 14 different autos- autosomal introns, so that's the spaces between exons within genes. Um, so these are non-coding portions of the DNA from several individuals uh, a- across different species to account for heterozygosity. Okay, a lot of terms in there. And this is the basic branch that they found. And you know, superficially, you might be like, oh, sure, Noah's Ark would result in all these bears. And you're right that polar bears can interbreed with brown bears, even though We call them different species. Um, There isn't a lot of great evidence that American black bears can interbreed, but there may be some. Um, And then we have these Asiatic bears, which seem to be kind of a different branch. But this is the thing. So we can date them. So if you use the molecular dating methods that I talked about, we think that the divergence between polar bears and brown bears was around 620,000 years ago. And then the American black bear, that goes back to 940,000 years ago. And then uh, you know, it was about 1.7 million years ago when there was a split between the North American bears and the and the Asian bears. Okay. And then we can kind of go through for the each of these. Great. All right. But maybe, maybe evolutionists, like you said, maybe we're completely wrong. We we have this completely, you know, we're totally backwards. And then in fact, like we're we're just totally discounting these rapid processes that you're talking about. The uh-huh. thing is about the bear kinds, you also have the spectacle bear. So Mm -hmm. that's another bear that the data shows that their DNA is different enough where it would have to be around 5.8 million years ago where they diverged. And then if you include the panda, well, that's around 12.5 million years ago. And the spectacle bear cannot interbreed with any of these other bears. And obviously pandas cannot either. Okay. Okay. So this is a figure taken from there. So with the creationists, if what we're going to do is we're going to assume that like Noah's Ark, um, you know, there was a, a bear that got off of the Ark. Uh, four thousand four hundred years ago, like two bears, I guess, right? A mama bear and a papa bear, and so four thousand four hundred years ago, that that mama bear and papa bear got off the ark. Maybe they had two, they had they had four babies, I guess, right? A male and a female, and another male and a female, and one male and female went to China, and and eventually that line turned into the the to the giant panda, and then you would have all these other ones, right? That went somewhere else, and eventually you know, some descendants went to Asia and then some descendants went to North America. All this would have had to happen within 4,400 years. Um, right? time and out. so time what this out. means, hold on, let me finish. So with the molecular evidence, what this means is that the, the, the split for the spectacle bear from the rest of the bears would have had to have only happened around 2,070 years ago, around the time of Jesus Christ, right? So that's when the spectacle bear somehow diverged. And then these other bears, if you believe the molecular evidence, right? We're looking at the same molecular evidence. This would mean that polar bears and brown bears split only 218 years ago. That would mean that with if you believe the evidence that the molecular clock works with random mutation in these non-coding regions from a single bear kind, that polar bears and brown bears would have split in 1796. And obviously we know that there are bears, there have been polar bears around for a long time, right? These are some pictures from like the 1600s and the 1700s, and even thousand year old polar bear statuettes carved from like Native American tribes in Canada. So you have to have an explanation for this um, that fits the creationist model. And I don't know if you do, how do you account for these molecular differences across these bears, you know, if you also include the giant panda? I suppose what you're saying is that, well, that must mean Noah also had a giant panda on the ark.
1: So, okay, now, Um, Can you go go back and pull your slide? Oh, sure. With the with the the branching of the bears. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, a couple things: Um, what you're using for an average um, uh, mutation rate for your molecular clock is absolutely going to affect the numbers you splash on a on a, a graphic like that, right? so um as i've already pointed out and and so when you when you look at things like the ark encounter they they do a fair amount of research um me not being a biologist um i'm i'm not the one to to uh, try and give you super specific details here but you you know whenever you go to the ark encounter that um they have to account for this exact same thing how do you how do you um, justify the given number of species in the in the world today with what you start with on the ark and so what they do with this is they in this case they would assume three different bear kinds, probably. I, I don't. Again, I, I'm not the biologist, and I don't know those specific details. But they do that. They they basically tend to fatten the numbers in favor of the quote unquote evolutionist objections. So, okay. if you if you tell me there are three different bear kinds, I'm perfectly fine with that. That means two of your uh, supposed right. splits are completely non-issue.
0: So you're saying that uh, Noah had giant pandas on the ark. He also had spectacle bears on the ark and then some other bear kind that ended up being the North American version and the South American ver- or sorry, the Asian version.
1: Well, to be more specific, I'm not saying he had giant pandas, I'm saying he had the giant panda ancestor, ancestor. and and perhaps one, one pair of ancestors is what accounts for. All of our giant pandas today. I'm not suggesting that they had to look exactly like what we see today because I don't think they probably they probably did not.
0: If these are specially created individuals, how do you account for the fact that, like thus, for instance, the DNA of a spectacle bear would have really high homology to all kinds of genes? To all these other bears, this cluster of bears that makes up the Asian population and the North American population.
1: Right. Yeah. No. That's a, that's a very fair question, and it has a very logical, common sense um, um, answer to it, and that is, so in in the evolutionary um, view, obviously those those um, DNA similarities come from common ancestry, right? Um, However, in the creationist view, it's design, but I'm going to be a lot more specific than just saying it's design. Um, You being um, in the particular field you're in, I I think you can attest to this very clearly. Um, It's the food source and the environment that tie the similarities together. And so, granted, two different animals that are very similar to each other can have completely different food sources and yet share quite a bit in common as far as dna i get that um but as a broader conversation for all of homologies and all of dna similarities um it's it's pretty common sense that for example a fly a worm a bear as it were a person can all eat an apple and get the um, the, the uh, health benefits from eating that apple, right? So, um, what does the apple do for any one of us? Well, it um, it promotes growth, development, uh, reproduction, um, metabolism, um, even things like. Um, um, disease resistance or, or immunities and, and that sort of thing. Um, so the food source has to account for that. And, and, and what that means to me, not being a chemist either, um, the molecules that your body uses, the vitamins, um, the, the fiber, the protein, whatever it is that's in your food source has to be able to be used just like I think of a mechanical interface between a, a nut and a bolt kind of thing. Um, the chemicals in your food source have to be able to support your DNA and your life cycles. So how do I account for the similarities between spectacle bears and the other bears? It's the food source and the fact that they probably have quite a bit of overlap in their, um, in their life cycles. All
0: right. T-Rock, you've got a problem here because giant pandas. Okay. They're also very similar to the other bears. Mm-hmm. You're saying they're specially created and completely separate, but they're very similar genetically. Um they they eat, do you know what they eat? Yeah, bamboo. Right. They, do any of these other bears eat bamboo? No. Okay, are there other carnivores that eat bamboo? No. Okay, so I, well, why does I, the giant I, panda aware. have DNA that's very, very similar to all these other bears, but then is a lot less different, It's, it's not quite as similar as it is to say like the other carnivores, like foxes and coyotes and wolves.
1: So what what um, vitamins does bamboo have in it? I I mean I, I, I don't know. I mean I'm okay, sure so vitamins. Right? Thank you for so, making my point. That's okay. what I was saying. An apple. Orange, it's totally bean, different
0: from uh...
1: a, a piece of cauliflower have a lot of overlap in terms of the vitamin content and, and the nutrient content that's in them. So um, there's absolutely no surprise to me that a panda bear eats bamboo and shares a lot of DNA similarity with other bears. They, the other bears also, most of them, I don't think any bears are obligate carnivores. You can correct me. On not obligate. That. That's true. The only it's...
0: like there aren't too many um, mammals that are obligate carnivores. You so, find- so so they all so anyway.
1: they all rely on plant and vegetation matter to to some degree sure
0: them, right? but they largely get a lot of their nutrition from uh, from hunting yeah but, but panda are exclusively uh, bamboo they have to eat bamboo sure. to survive
1: I understand right. um yes. and and that's fine but uh, it what, what that tells me is that as a scientist if you have not investigated that particular um aspect of the relationship across the animal kingdom let alone across a subset like this you're not really investigating the full spectrum of possibilities.
0: Oh no people have investigated and you know we can walk through it like this is part of the phylogenetic challenge so you know you accept that evolution is true at least within kinds and that you can get speciation events in a, in a very rapid way um and and you know I'm glad that we we agree on that and that natural selection you obviously agree that natural selection can lead to divergence of populations and then have you know significant change in overall morphology. So yeah, um, so on, on natural mm-hmm.
1: selection, uh d- just a quick word on that. Um I know I'm I'm not one you you know there are creationists that say there is no such thing as natural selection, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that or not.
0: I think most creationists accept natural selection. That is true. I, I'm just yeah. I'm
1: just pointing out that there are some that right. don't and, sure. and, I, and I'm just pointing out that I'm not one of those. I, I do accept right. the idea of natural selection, but but I will caveat that with, um, I think evolutionists way overgeneralize the concept. Um, so let, let's kind of look at it from from this perspective for just a minute, because you made some points back in your presentation about mm-hmm. uh, hyper evolution. Yes. And so you said, you said specifically not enough time for this level of speciation. So tell me again, how many species of bears are there? Well, there's eight species of eight bears. Eight species. Okay. Yes. So in a 4- that 400- doesn't
0: include fossil species for which we actually, actually have their genetics.
1: So in a 4,400-year 4, timeline, um, if the average doubling time, if there were six bears on the ark and the average doubling time, this is a trick question, by the way. Mm-hmm. If the average doubling time of each of those six bears, um, two, three different kinds is what I'm describing here. Um, but if the average doubling time is um, 149 years for their population, okay, how many bears would there be in the world today?
0: So if they wait, the average doubling time around 149 years for mm-hmm. uh, the six bears that we're talking about that were on the ark, right? Yep. But uh okay, but the but I there's only uh, two of those so
1: I'll answer the question for you. I'm not expecting sure. you to do the math on the spot. Yeah, yeah. The answer is about seven billion. Seven billion, okay. Yeah, you I think it means an
0: exponential increase.
1: You, you know what's unique about that number? I mean about all me. of those numbers? Mm-hmm. Those numbers represent the actual number of reproducing people on the ark, the current population, roughly. It's it's more than that, I think, now, but um, okay. and and the actual average doubling time so what that tells me not being a biologist is that if a 100, 149 years is roughly twice the average human lifespan mm-hmm. and that average being as proud as it is 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 owed largely to things like uh natural disaster war um disease and famine and that sort of thing that have killed a lot of people off between now and then otherwise we would have a lot more people on on the planet today so um In other words, the potential for people and 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 people and bears are I'm going to say they're at least in the same ballpark. Um, The potential for people in terms of doubling time is like on the order of 15 years, every 15 years. Now, starting out the gate with the first two, that's not obvious. That's obviously not going to be the case, probably. But over time, the average becomes that very easily, easily. um, In the absence, you're
0: you're assuming that every single person survives, right? (laughs)
1: No that's what the the 149 years informs you that you're not I, assuming I
0: see okay survives. I see that's what you're saying okay so
1: so the point is is that if if we were anywhere near our potential you know what the average population doubling time for people is now it's I, like it's like yeah, it's thirty-nine short. years, right? It's, it's and that's like, from yeah, the that's the from U.S. government statistics. It's thirty-nine sure. years. If if our doubling time had actually averaged thirty-nine years since the time of the flood, there would be so many people on the planet there wouldn't be room to move, literally. Um, so the, the point is, when you talk about the bears and the and and you're saying not enough time, um, yeah, for speciation because that's a no, different. No, 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 no. and, yeah. and and so this is exactly my point. Okay molecular differences. What drives molecular differences? And what I'm saying mm-hmm. is, in short, there is a food supply to consider. There is a, uh, I mean, you're
0: saying natural selection has lead, led to molecular differences. So these animals can adapt. No, to different
1: that's, food that's, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. That's well, I'm saying, where, why are you I'm saying, saying if you take supply, the major, I'm saying if you take mm-hmm. the major contributors to molecular differences they would be things like the food supply the specific chemistry of the food supply right. the chemistry of the water supply temperature i think you would know as well as anybody in this in this uh, arena that temperature affects chemical reaction right it can be a catalyst or or, and the water
0: supply it's (laughs) hydrogen and oxygen right Uh, no (laughs) okay
1: you've never gotten a mineral report from your local water
0: okay sure there's some small trace minerals we are doing real science that that doesn't have a substantial effect
1: okay we we want real science here right sure but i mean you're talking
0: where are most of the molecules in water it's going to be hydrogen and Mm -hmm. oxygen
1: that's that's very generalized
0: the okay. animals
1: that that drink from the muddy muddy rivers that's not just oxygen and hydrogen
0: it's majority oxygen and hydrogen
1: <laughs> that's uh, i think you're avoiding admitting I don't the think obvious so.
0: like what percent of muddy water would you say it like those molecules are non water molecules
1: well i mean look is, at is the it difference more than half? In- I mean, that's, that's a super generalized deal, but look at the density okay. difference between salt water and fresh water. That sort of informs you what that volume is going to be, right? Sure. Um, and, and so, muddy water, how muddy is it? I mean, there's there's a variety of, of okay. muddiness, so to speak. And so,
0: let's t- go back to like the arc. All right, we're getting a little lost on the muddy water and arguing about muddy water. Now, I, there's I a, there's a
1: specific point. Here. Let me make so, this specific like, point. I'll tie it all together real yeah. quick for you okay. and, then, and then take your time to respond. Sure. So i've named three four different factors that directly affect chemistry the food supply the water supply temperature uh, hydration levels and and um in other words environmental factors right so we've got eight species of bear now the question is if you can mix and match environment with food and water chemistry, for example, you're in the northern cold climates with a specific food source versus being in a tropical environment with a completely sure. different food source. So if you mix and match those factors in a in a broad spectrum, and it's very broad, mm-hmm. um, you're describing a huge spectrum of chemistry that has to directly inter- interface with the DNA that is...
0: Wait, how does the chemistry interface with the DNA?
1: Have you ever taken medicine before? Come on.
0: Yes, I'm a neuroscientist. I teach it.
1: Okay, how does the how do the chemicals in your medicine affect your body in real time?
0: Okay, if you're talking about Okay, first of all, most chemicals that you put into your body get digested and they have to be processed and there's yep. enormous processing that happens before it gets to does it say, the germline which is the thing that's going to be passed down from generation to generation right yep. you know so like just because you drink some muddy water that doesn't mean that the chemicals in the muddy water are actually going to affect the germline which is the one thing that goes from one individual to um, like your offspring
1: excuse me can i can i make a a real quick little point on that sure there's a reason there's a surgeon general's warning on cigarettes and um and other products like that and a reason why pregnant women are advised do not take this do not take that are they not affecting the germline
0: i no, not in pregnant women no
1: oh so their children are born with defects
0: so a pregnant woman already is with with child And the chemicals in cigarettes will have a substantial effect on the growing fetus. This includes the nicotine, which will act on nicotinic receptors, which are really important for the development of the brain. And so you're going to have huge effects on overall brain development. If you put nicotine into the fetus and then it's affecting it but that doesn't mean it's affecting the dna or causing mutations. I disagree
1: with most of that but but let's paint that's not causing mutations you understand a little better picture than that for real life science okay so So there are chemicals that are
0: mutagenic um, if a 15
1: year old takes uh smokes uh cigarettes drinks alcohol takes illicit drugs for for six years straight and then Mm -hmm. has a baby Are you telling me that the Bay and and completely quits those things before they, they, um, you know, decide to reproduce. Are you telling me that that six years worth of um, ingesting those chemicals is not going to affect their offspring?
0: I don't think so. No.
1: Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. That's really special.
0: Do you have any evidence that uh, say certain kinds of drugs, uh, illicit drugs are going to actually affect the germline? All right. I honestly, I think we're getting way off topic. Um. The, let's go back to the Ark a little bit. I, and, I personally uh, think it's too specific
1: yeah. for the average evolutionist. but Okay, uh,
0: Okay, perhaps.
1: But the, the thing is,
0: all right, you think that there were three bear kinds on the Ark sure. now, right? So it's not I, just one, it's three. Yeah, and to be okay. clear, I'm not
1: changing my view per se. I'm just saying I've always allowed for the fact that there's more than potentially one. Sure. more than one. Yeah, and that's fair. Okay, as the evidence comes about.
0: So the thing is like bears... There's not that many bears, that many different kinds of bears
1: Right there,
0: but we can look at other species, groups of species. Sure. For instance, if you look at the myomorphs, I don't know if you're familiar with the myomorphs, no. but that includes, it's a subset of rodents. Okay. So we're not okay. even talking about all rodents. We're talking about a subset of rodents. There's okay. 1,524 different species of just myomorpha. That includes mice, rats, uh, voles, hamsters, jacanas. There's all kinds of weird little rodents. Are you and we know that they're different species, like they cannot interbreed. You cannot get a mouse to breed with a rat, for
1: instance. And you're positive,
0: 1,500 different species. Yes, people have worked with these. No, let
1: let, let me let mm -hmm. me get you to answer a specific question real quick. You're positive that there is no interbreeding connectivity amongst those 1,500 whatsoever.
0: All of them, I I can't say for all of them, but for a lot of them, that's kind of important. Okay, for a lot of them, yes, they are separate species, absolutely. And Uh in fact, we know that like the genetic. Genetic distance for a lot of the myomorphs uh goes back a lot farther than it is between say chimpanzees and humans okay. so they don't have even the genetic capacity like for instance a mouse and a rat are more different genetically than chimpanzees are to humans and we know that humans and chimps can't interbreed right i assume you would agree with that uh, sure right Okay, I mean, given that they're specially created, right? So, so rats and mice cannot interbreed, and this okay. is true for the vast, vast, vast majority of the one thousand five hundred different species of myomorphs. Are you saying that Noah went around and picked up all these little rodent-like creatures all across the world and put them on the ark and then had them separate, and then had to have one thousand five hundred different species of them?
1: Obviously, that's not what I'm saying.
0: Okay, well then, what are you saying? So, like, how so many did com- have?
1: Let's compare that to the bears real quick. Sure. Your comment, not enough time for this level of speciation. Yes. There are eight species of bears. All you're talking about is eight um basically mm-hmm. subpopulations separating from each other. No, they're uh, not subpopulations. It, it's, it's, huh? They're
0: not subpopulations.
1: We call them whatever, sorry, maybe biologically the incorrect word, but you get the idea. Eight separate sure. populations have diverged. Um, and and to me, that's really trivial in a forty four hundred year Sure, time And that's
0: one example.
1: Okay, and we'll take another okay. one. Okay, now now you want to talk about the rodents? That's fine. You're describing sure. fifteen hundred species. You're right. not super. And and I'm not faulting you for this, but you're not being super specific about how much interbreeding uh, capability there is amongst it's that group.
0: Very very limited, if at all.
1: Whatever. Okay. So, <clears throat> and th- and that's fine. Um, but. The point is, is that even 1500 divergent populations, if that's the term you prefer to describe 1500 divergent populations, and and that's worst case scenario, again, among rodents, I would happily allow for a variety of of different individually created kinds Mm -hmm. Um, 1500, though, worst case scenario is trivial for a 4400 year time span
0: it's trivial the, to have that many species emerge over 4400 to years. have
1: that specifically let me describe it this way mm-hmm. to have that many divergent populations right so I'm, I'm describing worst case scenario which i don't actually subscribe to but for your sake and the evolutionist sake two mice on the ark get off they start having babies what's the litter size
0: uh, okay. Already, I know that it's big. The thing is, we have exactly. historical
1: evidence of these different
0: species, though. Like That's we know fine. that these
1: species, That's fine, and I'm describing right. archaeological evidence. Scenario, so you're saying that
0: speciation? That. How do, how do you get a rat? Okay. So, uh, uh, are you saying that like Noah had rats on the on the ark and then mice on the ark? And then also voles, and then well, like meadow voles and prairie voles, Not and montane but, voles, and because they don't, give, they can't interbreed. I'm they trying cannot to give interbreed. worst
1: case scenario for biological mm-hmm. processes okay. in the normal world. So I, really? I assume I'm encompassing something where, where let's let's just say for the sake of argument, there were thirty varieties of of rats or mice or voles. There's or more whatever, than that, right? Sure. And I'm I'm saying at the ark. Oh okay. Obligate passengers on the ark. 30. Sure. But but I'm narrowing it down even further to 1. And I'm saying what I'm saying is if if you can do it with with 1 created kind of of rat, we'll call it, you can absolutely do it with 30, would you agree? If if it could hypothetically be done.
0: Wouldn't this also be seen in the DNA as well as in the historical record? of the people living in areas with rodents. Wouldn't that have also seen these animals? That's really
1: deceptive. What's deceptive about that? Well, because you can have radical DNA changes in a very short time and if you don't actually see it happen and so a, a good case in point is probably the the marbled crayfish that i know about
2: sure. um
1: and, and i know very little about it to be to be clear but as i understand it marbled crayfish had literally a genome a, a full genome duplication, full genome duplication yeah. it pretty much happened in a single generation right mm-hmm. yeah and, and so their offspring, I guess, as I understand it, can't could not or cannot interbreed with the parent population, right?
0: I work with a species that's tetraploid. So that uh, means that it also had a genome duplication relative to other sister species. So uh-huh. I work with the African clawed frog, um, uh-huh. and that also had a genome duplication event. Now, this didn't happen uh in a timeline that people saw it necessarily i mean i suppose you might so
1: so i guess i guess the bigger Mm -hmm. point to make on that in the the marble crayfish example because you get a, a full genome duplication in a single generation the point to be made there is that you would not apply a standard evolutionary mutation rate to that species
0: you can still apply a standard evolutionary mutation rate to that species because there's still the original genome that's there. Now, what often happens is now in a genome duplication event, instead of having two pairs of chromosomes, now you have four pairs. And what we see is is surprisingly, because you have two pairs that are there to just kind of work and do the thing that the animal needs, You've got now new genetic material for it to diverge and do new things. And that's one of the reasons why people study the African clawed frog, way that they do, because they're very interested in, in, well, how does an animal that had this genome duplication event that seemed to have occurred relatively recently, uh, as best as we can tell, it was around 10 million, 10 million years ago, but we can still look at the genetic sequence because it's still there. Mm-hmm. And so we can compare the African clawed frog, um, Xenopus lavis to Xenopus tropicalis, which is a sister species, mm-hmm. and that is a diploid. And we know that like their last common ancestor was around 10 to 12 million years ago. There was this mm-hmm. duplication event, and now like they have uh they have double the number of chromosomes. And uh at, but there's still been the slow mutation that's occurred and there's lots of these they're called the pinniped frogs there's a bunch of these kind of african fully aquatic frogs i suppose you might call them all one kind but there's a bunch of different species and the the mutation rate between them varies quite a bit like that like, i'm sorry not the mutation rate the differences between the genetic sequences varies quite a bit where they don't all diverge at the same time like mm-hmm. The ancestry for the different Xenopus species uh goes back some distance. Um, and it and it varies quite a bit.
1: So, so I mean, I, I think it, it it should go without saying though, if if a species like the marble crayfish
2: mm-hmm. can have
1: such a drastic change in their sure. in their DNA in a single generation, um, it, it's also well understood that things yes. like um, like chromosome fusion, um, mm-hmm. complete um, inversions of, of of long segments can all happen in a single sure. generation, and, and that can they, lead
0: to and, and they can have profound
1: confusion. physiological. Um, implications right
0: right that no not just physiological but i and i wouldn't even necessarily say substantially physiological but what i would say is that this would likely lead to um a um you know probably genetic isolation so if you have a population of animals that had a genetic duplication and as long as like because it's generally going to happen in one individual but if law lo- somehow you can get it across multiple individuals where they can interbreed obviously that's going to lead to genetic isolation um uh, surprisingly, though, even the Xenopus laevis and the Xenopus tropicalis can interbreed and create hybrids, but they can only do it if the female is the is the laevis with the four chromosomes. If the female is the tropicalis, there's no viable offspring that occurs, and that's because the laevis has telomeres that have evolved to allow for segregating enough chromosomes. And so, if you do a hybrid between a female lavis and a male tropicalis. The tropicalis has two sets, of only two pairs of chromosomes. The lavis has four pairs. The female egg has the telomeres that can allow for it to pull away the three chromosomes. Now, th- those individuals they cannot, uh, they're not, vi- they're viable, but they cannot interbreed there's there's not like a separate species you can
1: you know i apologize i don't mean to interrupt Um, uh, james James was gone for a second He was Um, gone james uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna ask real quick james can you go to commercial break for just a second and i need about um 60 to 120 seconds and i'll be right back
2: you bet want to let you know folks oh you're on mute james gladly Go ahead, T-Rock. And I want to let you know, folks, if you have not already checked out the description box, our guests are linked there. That includes the podcast. As we put our guest links in the description box there as well, 100% of the debates from Modern Day Debate go up onto the Modern Day Debate podcast show, which you can find at your favorite podcast apps, including Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it. We are on virtually every single podcast app out there, and you can find our guest links in the description box there as well. In addition, I had mentioned earlier, we have expanded onto TikTok. So if you missed that, I have put that link for our TikTok in the description box. I am also going to put it at the top of the chat right now. The reason being, if you have a TikTok and if you follow us there, that helps Is we need a thousand followers before we can live stream our debates on TikTok. That's gonna be a huge move for Modern Day Debate once we're able to live stream because right now TikTok is pushing live streams hard. So we do wanna say we appreciate it if you do happen to follow us there at TikTok. And as I said, that link is in the description box as well as pinned to the top of the chat. Ready for you, t rock.
1: Thank you, James. Uh, Apologize, I just had to get a drink. My mouth was getting really dry there. (laughs) Okay, so I guess um, one of my major points here on this whole, you know, how much time does it take to get 1,500 species of something from X number of, of kinds, I'm telling you that it's trivial to get 1500 different species, but I'm easily accepting the idea that there were 30 different kinds that contribute to the existing 1500 species. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, um, the crayfish example um another example would be like um grasshoppers and locusts as i understand it there's a species of grasshopper that literally morphs itself in real time to more of a locust. um well i I guess the locust has a specific look and a specific um, social behavior to it and and they do it in real time but the difference between their genes is virtually zero right they, they're not reprogramming their genes it's epigenetics that's doing it um so um and and chromosome fusion and other types of of, of broad-scale inversions and and swaps and, and that kind of thing that happen in the genome um you can get pretty profound if, effects in a very short time so if, if you take the mouse example um i, I asked the question how many is in a litter um well it's it's a large number right yeah. so uh, but but I'll, I'll keep it conservative let's to say there's only six well you potentially have three new mating pairs that can go three other directions the parent population can continue breeding continue spitting out six a litter of six every so often whatever their their breeding cycle is and then you've got these original um uh the original right. uh offspring they're,
0: they're still in the same conditions how do you get speciation
1: well that's what that's what i was describing the chemistry of the food source for because if two of the mice go north they're right. eating, they're they're in a completely different chemical and environmental But
0: environment. chemicals that you eat don't, they don't, co- okay, so you're saying that the chemicals that you're eating are affecting your DNA in the germline, and that's the thing that's causing speciation.
1: Well, like I said, chemistry and environmental factors, so level of hydration, for example. So if you're a farmer and you want your peppers to be hotter, what do you do? You change what you feed them, you change the amount of water you give them, right? That's not
0: changing the DNA though. Okay. But that's what we're talking
1: about. Okay. There's still the But same DNA species. can the DNA. I'm I'm not insisting DNA has to change because you change the food source, but it does change occasionally
0: but we know that the DNA is different in these different species.
1: <laughs> but you also know that chemistry directly the chemistry of the food supply has to directly interact with your DNA. It doesn't. <laughs> I, I, I have, I, I'm personally, DNA's I'm just absolutely appalled that a, that a uh, a biochemist. Uh, I, I'm going to call you. I'm a not appalled. a
0: biochemist. I'm a neuroscientist. A but neuro, uh, the, but, trust me, the food that you eat is not filtering through your body and touching on DNA throughout your entire body. That, that is not that true. Eat,
1: Every single cell in your body has to receive hydration and nutrients. Every okay, single cell, cell in but, your but body. not the DNA. The DNA is in the cells. Okay, oh man, all right come on come on. At a very basic chemical chemistry <laughs> level, when you take aspirin for a headache, that aspirin now' not there, affecting a, the DNA. There's a couple points to be made there because you you, you talked about uh, you know affecting pregnancy but not germline. and you said, right. what's your proof? Well, my proof would start with go back and talk to the surgeon general again and see how many mm. warnings they have to mothers who wish to become pregnant.
0: I, I I don't know if they do. Um, uh, the thing is, mutagenesis, there are chemicals that will induce mutagenesis. That is a term. You can go to any MSDS, like long list, and you can see what are mutagenic chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, in food, there aren't, the, I mean, I'm sure there probably are some examples of food James, out there that have you, some mutagenic chemicals. If capacity. you eat too
1: much sugar, it's probably not on your list. But if you it, eat too much course. Sugar? But it's not causing mut-
0: mutations in DNA.
1: Um, I, I I don't think I would say that very confidently if I were you. And, and the reason but... is the reason is is because if it, it's uh, diabetes, for example, can be inherited from the parents, right?
0: Sure. That's because that... there's already a mutation in the DNA what caused that it? made that person prone to getting diabetes. What caused and that the mutation? Per- I mean, th- there was probably just a random mutation that occurred at some point. There's some Debate over whether some of these alleles for people to be prone to getting diabetes, if that they may actually have some benefit and that the population may be supporting um, a, per, people with an allele for insulin production that would, you know, under certain conditions lead to diabetes, but would be advantageous under, say, famine conditions. Now, we don't live in famine conditions. We live with uh you know um in an environment of indulgence and and it's ridiculous the amount of sugar and food that we can eat. so sure. now we're at a disadvantage in those kinds of populations, but okay. people who have those mutations would be uh prepare, you know this is speculated that they may have um certain advantages under certain um mm-hmm. environmental conditions and so
1: damage. and so what I'm saying but that though, mutation
0: happened a long time ago
1: if a uh, a long so time it's ago, not because they ate sugar. Not because it, what was it from them? It's
0: not because they ate sugar. Well, the what sugar was it did from? not cause the mutation.
1: What was it from?
0: I don't know. I mean, but, it, it's a random And how can you say it hurt. wasn't
1: sugar? How can you say it wasn't sugar if you don't even know what the cause is?
0: You're telling me that a mutation that we know that's been around for a very long time was caused by sugar and that's why we have I'm not diabetes trying to make today.
1: a direct claim that sugar is responsible for the first mutation where diabetes or that's that's not How my point my point is that if you if you if a if a line of people eat uh, let's start with the mother father if if the parents eat a pound of sugar every single day and then you take another couple that they don't eat sugar they eat a, a much more balanced diet which one do you suppose is going to end up with diabetes in their own lifetime, disregarding their offspring?
0: Doesn't that doesn't affect mutagenesis.
1: No, no. Hear me out. Right. It it is well understood.
0: The completely unrelated issue.
1: It is well, no, we're not. There's a direct correlation here as a scientist, you should be able to put this together and I apologize. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I I think it should be super obvious because like when it comes to sugar and diabetes in particular, um, it is well known that you can induce diabetes in people. Sure. Yes. Sugar consumption. Right.
0: But that so, doesn't mean that that's caused mutations in DNA.
1: If, but if first generation does that, and then they teach their children to do that, and then their children teach their grandchildren over time, you will get some um, mutations that arise from your diet. Yeah. No guaranteed that's not how that works <laughs> I, I think you need to talk to a, a an actual geneticist <laughs> okay. uh, somebody like James I, I, I think he would fully endorse my position on I this i don't think so I,
0: uh, that after a few generations of a family eating sugar that they're going to have a mutation i, I mean, I mean at to the, di- diabetes
1: at the end of the day uh, I mean, be be as honest as you can here at the at the end mm-hmm. of the day um in your worldview the genome is just a compilation of of chemicals i mean it's four basic nucleotides yes okay
0: right four that, specific that, molecules just saying that is chemicals like these are specific chemicals that have a certain affinity for um each other and we have molecular processes in each cell that allows for the duplication of dna and to you know make sure that like there's air correction mechanisms i mean we can go on and on about this Let's get back on topic. Let's talk about evolution. Now, do you think, what, what's your position on Neanderthals? Do Neanderthal? you think fully Neanderthals hum. existed? Fully human. Okay, they're fully human. Okay. Yep. So have you paid any attention at all to the recent work on ancient DNA from Neanderthals?
1: Um, I've I paid some attention, yeah. I, I understand that like almost every human alive has some very small percentage of quote-unquote Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, right
0: um now uh and and there was a nobel prize uh, the last nobel prize went out to the guy who had been working on ancient dna from neanderthal specimens right uh savante pabo is his name so um the de- the the dna from um neanderthals shows that yes they have high homology to human dna that's to be expected given that they are human however the differences between neanderthal dna and human dna are so great that it's so much greater than any two humans compared to each other okay how do you explain that if they're just
1: human it, again it it goes back to the, my whole reason for bringing any of the chemistry stuff up is that your your dna in the evolutionist worldview is just chemicals and they have to react in the exact same predictable fashion that any other type of chemistry would work put a a a nacl molecule next to an h2o molecule and there's a certain thing that happens from that chemical um, interface right and so my what i'm saying is okay there are large differences between uh, neanderthal um, dna and modern human dna Mm -hmm. fine where did it come from it came from a difference in chemistry or an exposure that they had to chemistry.
0: Okay. Now I'm going to kind of walk through the phylogenetic challenge a little bit. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically, like you can take, okay, so you can take, you can basically take um, any three sort of organisms, mm-hmm. put them in a room and you can always kind of find two organisms that are more similar to each sure. other than the third. Okay. And then you can kind of go beyond that. So like if we have Neanderthals and humans, and then we have a chimpanzee in the room you obviously i think you and i would both agree that neanderthals and humans are more similar to each other than chimpanzees and <laughs> you would agree that humans and neanderthals share a common ancestor that was adam and eve i guess and is what
1: you believe well more more recently it would be um it would be noah and his wife well i mean okay so you think that there're still neanderthals or no i'm saying i'm saying the neanderthals One of them was a neanderthal i'm saying that the no i'm saying that the neanderthal neanderthals that you find are post flood specifically not pre flood how are they post flood where do you find them well,
0: uh,
1: in caves them in caves yeah that's thank right
0: thank you yes that's okay. so you're saying that well, which which of noah's sons was a neanderthal
1: <laughs> again you I, I i i'll be honest with you i am incredibly taken a uh by surprise, Shem,
0: Japhet, and who's the other one?
1: Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth.
0: Ham, yes, right. I should have known Ham. I like, I like Ham.
1: Okay, um, so without knowing a ton about the how the genetics trace um somebody like Nathaniel Jensen would would be a much better source for very specific details but what i'm suggesting is neanderthals were an offshoot probably from the um well they they went north right so that would be the line of japheth does that mean japheth was a quote unquote neanderthal that whole thing and 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 so for the audience's sake what is the genus uh, species of modern human
0: that's yeah, homo
1: it's it's the genus species is Homo sapien, right? That's right.
0: Oh genus and, species, yes, homo sapiens yeah, and,
1: and what is the genus species specifically, just those two of Neanderthals. Oh Homo Neanderthalensis. No, it's Homo sapien Neanderthalensis.
0: I, that is not I there's not consensus on that. I just let saw me show this why. I just so saw this
1: a day or two ago. Okay. Um, well is the reason gonna I'm saying
0: share my screen here. Heads up, James. Um Hopefully this can be seen.
2: Uh,
0: Okay, so this is data from Savante Pabo. This is old data from 1997. He's done tons of work on this. I encourage anyone to look up work from Savante Pabo. Google his name. He's got the weird little umlauts in his name because he's Swedish, Um, but he's got amazing work that he's done. So what they've done here is that they've looked at human to human comparisons in mitochondrial DNA. And any given mitochondrial human-human difference will be, you know, and as little as one or zero, probably, up to around fifteen or so. And this is the distribution of the population, the number of pairs that you can find between human-to-human differences. So you're not going to find any two humans that differ in this stretch of mitochondrial DNA by more than like fifteen or sixteen base pairs. Now, if you compare humans to Neanderthals, and as you said, like so, they're post-flood; they must have been in the caves. So this is from Shem and and j Feth and Ham, right? So one of them, um, th- these differences are now around 20, 25, or 30 mutations in mitochondrial DNA relative to humans. And mm-hmm. then humans to chimp, now we're talking about 50 to 60 mutations. So humans and Neanderthals, when you compare those two, they are different. And they're different so much that mit- we know mitochondrial DNA does not mutate at some sort of massive, rapid
1: rate. Well, so how well, do you well, explain? Well, 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 well. Mm -hmm. That's that to me. That's problematic. Okay, and and I'm assuming you're you're probably having to say that based on modern genomic studies and mutation rate studies. But then, how do you know that today's rates apply to three thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, eight thousand years ago? If they
0: applied to humans they would also apply to neanderthals what you're saying are humans i would agree that they're a, a human-like ancestor as well right so or human-like cousin to homo sapiens um yet they're different right so if the mutation rate was the same then we would just see a broader distribution of of mutations the, the neanderthals should not be different than humans but they're distinctly that's,
1: different that's a super extrapolated interpretation and mm-hmm. and the reason i say that is because um like i said you've got modern mutation rates that are easy to study because you can get tons and tons and thousands and tens of thousands of of um of uh, samples to study right in real time um mm-hmm. not not so much with 3000 years ago with specimens from 3000 years ago um and and so why ultimately you're still asking the same question why such huge differences between neanderthal dna and modern human dna and i'm telling you um chemistry is much much faster than uh, a a hundred thousand year timeline um biological processes name me one biological process that is slower than 80 years or, or faster faster than 80 years name me one Perhaps the Neanderthals were just eating too much sugar. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's real funny and everything. You, but <laughs> I, I know, that's real funny for the second callback. debate, but let's be a little more realistic here. Um, yeah. were, were, were the Neanderthals drinking filtered water?
0: I, neither were the humans back then.
1: How do you know? You think
0: the humans had like Brita filters back then? Um, come on, come
1: on, you're, you're, you're the scientist. You're supposed to kind of apply these ideas to your, your actual science. I know, as a non-scientist, I know that if I go to the Grand Canyon, for example, and I'm drinking a stream that's flow flowing through the bottom of the canyon, if it's going through a gravel bed, it's effectively filtered much better than okay. say drinking from the Vertiger's River down the road from my house, but, um, it, because filtration happens in nature.
0: You're not going to be able to filter out like diluted chemicals that are in water. You got to be kidding! Way.
1: You got to be kidding! Have you ever no. dru- have you ever dug a well?
0: I've never dug a well. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> um so. yeah, yeah, you can filter, you can filter 5,000 years ago, you could filter water naturally.
0: Sure. I, I mean it can do a substantial amount, but if there's an actual chemical that's diluted in the water, unless it goes through like some sort of carbon filtration, which I suppose is possible. And, but, but and see, I this know is, that mm-hmm.
1: this is one of my greater points about this hand waving idea. You're 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 basically it's it's a false dichotomy. You're like either totally filtered in the modern context of, of Brita filters or you're unfiltered, or, okay, you can do a little bit, but there's a spectrum there, and there are a lot more chemicals in the water than just, um, you know, mud or clay. So you're saying,
0: okay, so the Neanderthals that were found in caves that Savante Pabo has gotten DNA from, they were they were ancestors of the three people on the Ark. Yep. and um, Specifically
1: the line of Japheth. I'm fairly confident in that, yes.
0: Okay, why do you say that?
1: Well, because they went north, and that's where the line of Japheth went, the the region that the Neanderthal – Bones are found is in the northern part. So, um, just right. a quick biblical reference here as to why you find them in caves is because right. if you read the text of the Bible, they tell you they describe in multiple places throughout the Old Testament how the the custom was. For example, Abraham uh, when his wife Sarah died, and again um, when Joseph died, they did this with Joseph's body. But Abraham went and purchased a field and buried his wife's bones in a cave. It was a very common practice back then. So, to me, it is a it's zero surprise whatsoever that modern scientists go around and find um, human bones in caves. It's, it, it's perfectly in line with what the Bible says.
0: Now, where did Shem go?
1: Uh, Shem represents the uh, Asiatic group. Okay. So that now are answer. you
0: familiar with Denisovans?
1: Uh, vaguely. Yeah. All right.
0: They are a sister taxa to Neanderthals, right? Their DNA is more similar to each other. Okay. We find Denisovans in Asia.
1: Okay. And how did that happen? Well, I mean, they're, they're people. Um, one of the the greater points to make here about all of this entire discussion has mm-hmm. to do with selective breeding, and so it's not hardly ever mentioned mm-hmm. in uh, in the context of this type of conversation. But humans have been selectively breeding each other for thousands of years. So, to me, there's it's you, you can't really call it a, an anomaly or or an outlier or anything else because you know humans are in control of themselves and in a in local region. They're, to some degree, they're in control of the, the local population. So, to me, there's no surprise that either that both cases are actually simultaneously true. That Shem's line went to Asia, that Japheth's line went north into more of a European setting, and then there's also mm-hmm. crosses between them, mm-hmm. of, of varying degrees. Of varying degrees, too. So, for example, I'm married to a a Mexican woman, and I'm mm-hmm. full on. blonde hair, blue eyed Caucasian, right? And so what genetic result do you get if my kids who are half and half, if they, for instance, one of them marries a a full Mexican and the other one marries a full Caucasian, you end up with two different results, or let's Mm -hmm. say they, they go off and marry somebody of a different um, um, ethnic background. The, The point is, is that the number of possible combinations is pretty unlimited and, and it's doable in a very short period of time. Okay. Um,
0: this has been illuminating. Uh, I, I, um, I'm not too sure what more we can say. Um, the, and you obviously believe dinosaurs were on the ark, right?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Okay. And are there still dinosaurs today?
1: I, I highly doubt it. You doubt it. I mean, I, I only say it that way. I, I would say no, absolute no. But there's always the remote possibility that a, a very small population turns up in a very remote part of Africa, for example. But by and large, I believe, yes, they are extinct. Okay.
2: This might Why be- is that wrong
0: of me yeah, to believe I mean, they're extinct? So what about... Uh, yes, I think that. Well, I mean, except for birds, <laughs> birds are a dinosaur, um, but that's as far as we have. I don't Only think by definition,
1: not by, not by ancestry. But I mean, what, what's your point about the dinosaurs, though?
0: I'm just curious, like, because we're talking about, like, as yeah. per uh, the evolution perspective,
2: uh-huh. is
0: that dinosaurs were the dominant land terrestrial species, sure. uh, uh t- a tetrapod species, um, up until 65 million years ago when there was um you know a the um uh the asteroid that had struck the earth and killed off the dinosaurs
1: Uh, now you think that that
0: did not happen no
1: because we know that
0: there's an asteroid impact site right
1: i i I think to me it's kind of common sense that you say the asteroid is the cause for the extinction event yet 100 of the dinosaur bones are found in waterborne sediment
0: because that's how fossilization occurs Okay, we know that. Okay, y- you don't get fossilization under uh, a lot of different conditions. It's under actually very okay. particular conditions. Sure, and that and so there's all kinds of dinosaurs that are out there. It would have been some near, uh, you know, of, oh, across the 125 million years that there were dinosaurs, yeah. um, and, and in, so
1: and, in, and in some
0: areas where they would have been fossilized, and so you and, also
1: find said dinosaur fossils. Virtually always intermingled in in uh, layers that are also laden with marine fossils. That's not
0: entirely true. No, like there's certainly not. Like there's plenty of uh, fossil dinosaurs
1: that are found that are not in marine layers. Not in marine. What are you calling a marine layer?
0: Marine, like uh, oceanic derived.
1: And and how do you know they're not? Titles. They're not marine layers.
0: Well, we can tell from the actual like sediments, right? Okay. I'm not a geologist, right? So I'm only going on a little bit of, I know, okay. I'm a neuroscientist, so I only okay. study brains, but well, well, uh, let there's me share, plenty of examples.
1: Uh, along those lines, let me share a quick little um, sure. uh, tidbit of information for you on that okay. very point, because because um, that, that is a point that is widely contested by okay. evolutionists, right? And so in particular, I want to say, and you'll have to forgive me if I get some of these details slightly wrong, but the general gist will will totally be accurate. Um, I want to say it's the Coconino sandstone. Um, no no dinosaur fossils per se. instead what you find more of, I believe is footprints, not uh, not you know footprints wrong. of dinosaurs. Right. Uh, okay. yes, yes, dinosaurs and other other types of animals. Um, but the point is is that in the in the open literature, years and years ago, the first guy that went and investigated so it was coconino sandstone, basically what he did was he was looking at the angles of the waves in as the the cross bedding is laid Mm -hmm. they're looking at the so there's an angle where and you've seen this I'm sure in in like if you've been to the beach and you see the ripples underneath the water right so they're looking at that type of feature in the Coconino Mm -hmm. Sandstone and they're measuring the angle of of incline there and and what he concluded was that because those angles were what they they are it was an aeolian deposit wind-borne sediments right but the problem is, is he never actually chemically analyzed the sediment when he came to that conclusion. And the other problem is, is that um, there is actually a certain amount of overlap in those angles between aeolian deposit and fluvial deposit. So for example, 25 to 30 degrees or so is kind of in that overlap zone. And so uh, fluvial deposits, they, they don't typically go much above the 30 degree incline, right? Um, they tend to be a little shallower, whereas Aeolian tends to get a little steeper. And But there is some overlap between them. So you you can't just throw a a, a few uh, numerical statistics at that and say, oh, I know they're Aeolian. It's not quite that simple. Okay, so I'll try and round this out real quick so you can comment. But um, what ended up happening was uh, fast forward decades, and somebody's smart enough to actually analyze the sediments themselves said, "Look, there's got to be a difference in the chemistry or the content, as it were, of these deposits, whether it's aeolian or or um, fluvial." So, what they did was they set up this basic experiment in a jar where you take and put dry sand in a jar, and you have um, mica flakes in the sand, and then you just turn a fan, a circulating fan, on and let the thing sit there and 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 mix around the sand, right? So, And then they did the same thing in a, in a, in a wet sand environment with water in it, and, and to compare the two results. And the results are that in the dry environment, the mica flakes get pulverized into nothing in a very short period of time but in the fluvial uh, version they don't and it's because the obvious there's lubricity and there's some some spacing because of the water and all that kind of stuff so you don't pulverize the mica flakes in the sand in the in the fluvial environment and so what do you find in the Coconino sandstone you find mica flakes in the sand which means that the open literature papers that were written decades ago were completely wrong because they didn't even do all their homework on it so when you tell me that you find dinosaurs in 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 non fluvial environments, I'm going to say no, probably not. Okay,
0: uh, I'm making the distinction between marine and and non marine, um, okay. and that's the difference, right? So yes, fossilization is relatively rare. It typically happens where there are sediments. Sediments have to cover the specimen, the animal, or you know the plant or whatever we're talking about, and. Yeah, that's going to involve water typically. So, right, um, right. fossilization is very rare, okay. and it's very difficult to happen under like non-water involved conditions.
1: So, um, so the other big indicator there is the size of the graveyards. Okay. I don't know, so sure. you you go out and you look at some dino digs and there are literally thousands upon that literally in the tens of thousands depending on mm-hmm. how big of a, a geographical area you want to you want to map out but there are tens of thousands and sometimes they're heavily concentrated in relatively small areas and and so when yeah. you look at when you look at the bones they're they're off, often heavily disarticulated, which mm-hmm. basically means that they're transported by water before yeah,
2: and, probably. And, so that, and
1: and yeah. what it actually means is they died. Then got uh, probably degraded considerably, then got transported to a final location where they're buried. Some sort of massive flood event, not yep. necessarily yep. global, however. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's interesting. You should, you should say that. Uh-huh. Um, I actually
0: sure, had... We know that like substantial flood events can happen locally. Like sure. we have good evidence of a recent flood event that occurred in eastern Washington, where you have okay. these mega ripples that you can find. Yeah, uh, you're, you're talking the,
1: about. There's right. an, I know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah it was around ten thousand years ago. This like glacier, Lake, Missoula the, mm-hmm. the Lake Missoula exactly, flood.
1: The Lake Exactly.
0: Yeah, involved all the way out to Missoula into mm-hmm. eastern Washington and across mm-hmm. Idaho. Yep. Um and, and that's evidence of a massive flood on a on a massive very scale, large scale. Right. Yes. And um, we would see that.
1: And and today. so what's 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 also interesting so too in, in all of that is that um I, I had a slide and I apologize if I don't have it immediately available, sure. but um I have the slide that shows you can I, I found this on Wikipedia, which is not a creation-friendly website, by the way, but um what sure. I found was that they were describing these these practically continental wide floods at for example 300 million years ago in the evolutionary timeline so they they actually have very large scale flooding in the in the supposed um, evolutionary history it's just it's rarely ever talked about very few evolutionists actually know about it hmm
2: this may be an opportunity to jump into the Q&A. We actually, because I know it's probably late for you. Dr. Thompson, do I remember right? Are you on the East? Okay. I am on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm Virginia
0: Tech. So it is getting a little late, but I'm happy to do a Q&A. Let's do it.
2: Yeah, you bet. And we'll go through these fast. Actually, we don't have too many questions, so we're going to move fast. This one coming in from Ozzy and Talks. Thanks so much. Says, if rodents could have 1,500 divergent populations and bears have eight, how come humans have one? We spread all over the planet and we can all interbreed.
1: Great question. Who's the question for? I assume that's for you.
2: They didn't say it, but I assume it is for you, T-Rock, just because he's usually, ASEAN is an evolution position person.
1: Sure. Okay. Um, So, no, that's a a great question. Um, And and I think part of the answer that um, goes to the fact uh, that animals, appear to me to be designed to quote unquote speciate and, and, and there would be a really good practical reason. So, so I'm going to, going to, uh, segue for just a second. My, my answer is I tried to focus on the most practical solutions that, that apply to real everyday life. Um, that's, that's just kind of comes with the territory with, uh, uh, being from an engineering and manufacturing background, but, but so, so I'm going to try a very, uh, apply a very practical approach to this, this particular question. Um, in, in a design perspective, the mice speciate drastically, I'll say, um, and and plants a lot of plants do that a lot of things do non-human things do this they speciate drastically to the point they no longer interbreed but the functional reason for that would be that um, they're designed so that you can parse out characteristics that you want I used peppers plants as 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 a real quick example earlier so if you want very hot peppers or you want very sweet peppers you can parse those out and you can force them down lines to your benefit to use the way you want to animals the same way you can breed horses dogs you know cows whatever cows to give you know more milk or or more beef or whatever and and but but anyway the point is to be able to let them speciate and fix in characteristics that you want to keep and humans are not intended to be able to do that um i i think in uh uh When when you're talking about Neanderthal and talking about them being a different species, as Chris was describing a little while ago, um, I think you would be extremely racist if uh, you called a living Neanderthal a different species from the rest of us when you see them make musical instruments and uh, make tools and make pottery and speak um in in an intelligible language it would be extremely racist but the point is is that humans are designed specifically not to do that but animals are so that you can reap the benefits of the variations in in characteristics that you get out of them
2: you got it thank you very much for this question coming in from sunflower says chris Studies are rapidly, they didn't say it with the emphasis like that. I mean, so Dr. <laughs> Thompson, studies are rapidly identifying epigenetic mechanisms for how environmental factors cause an enduring change in the function of DNA that is passed to future generations. You don't need mutations.
0: Sure. They're, okay. First of all, yes, um, there are, epigenetic mechanisms can lead to change in DNA, well, change into the expression of certain genes um, that can potentially be passed into future generations. There, There's debate around how robust this mechanism is and whether this genuinely occurs um, and how long it persists. This is not mutations, though. What we're talking about are mutations, right? So we're talking about mutations of the DNA. Epigenetic mechanisms are simply little chemical signatures that have been added to sites on DNA, like a methyl sort of change, like adding a methyl group that can lead to confirmation in DNA structure so that it no longer like expresses, or maybe it expresses even more. Yeah, you that bet. is a mechanism.
2: Yep. You bet, and thank you very much for your question. Coffee Mom as well says, T-Rock, do you accept that humans are also animals?
1: Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I like to say, from a from a philosophical standpoint, that definitions of words are um, their conventions. You you decide what you want the definition of any given word to be, and they change over time, right? So, do I accept that humans are animals? Well, you're asking me, do I use the the convention of defining animals to include humans? And the answer is obviously no.
2: You got it. This one from Bubblegum Gun says, Doctor Thompson, would you be willing to debate me one on one? bring it. <laughs> you got it i
0: actually i'm having i will even though it's late here I mean, i'm gonna do an you know an after debate show over on my channel hey if you want to come over um and talk a little bit there i can't go too late it's pretty late here on the on the east coast but i'm happy to do that you can find my link um down below i assume right 100 so, percent. and we can talk there
2: that's right So Dr. Thompson's link is in the description box. So if you guys want to see that after show, you could open a tab right now and put that link in the tab so you don't forget. So I highly encourage you do it right now. This one from James W says, So all the civilizations archaeologists date to before the flood, during, enduring, after the flood are all misdated every single time they get it wrong. I think that's for you, T-Rock.
1: Yeah um no I, <laughs> that's kind of a funny question it's a very common question um i i talked briefly about dating methods in general and the rubber ruler concept um in short when they when when you get beyond about 3000 years or so um things like carbon dating become extremely in, inaccurate Um, Very quickly. So it's kind of an exponential curve drop off there. But um, are are they wrong? They have to calibrate it against something. So if you're in the the written uh, history of humanity, architectural context you can you basically have to calibrate your carbon 14 against the archaeological context to know whether you're you're accurate with it or not and so a calibration curve curve is developed like that but but as soon as you get to a place a place is the key as soon as you get to a place where you don't have a good archaeological context what do you have to calibrate your carbon 14 curve against well the, the short answer is there are some other methods that would be used such as isotope um ratios or you know varves or something like that but but the point is is that those are also calibrated against something so it's it's this it 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 turns into this long chain of i got to calibrate this method against that method and that method against that method and then i got to take that method and calibrate it against the very first method that i started calibrating um for And you end up with this bizarre circle. So in short, yeah, it's easy. It's super easy to be wrong with dating methods when you go outside the scope of written or archaeological history.
2: You got it. And just two more questions left. Study God's Word KJV. Thanks for your question. Says Dr. Chris Thompson. How did the first cell ever start needing a minimum of eight different parts when there are eight essential amino acids? never made in any pre-live conditions tests?
0: Okay, so this is an abiogenesis question. Obviously this is outside of my area of expertise. I'm a neuroscientist, I work with full complete animals and I don't work on single cellular organisms or the last universal common ancestor. There, The, the debate over last universal common ancestor is a complex one, I will grant that. It's a little bit of a separate question from evolution However, there's a lot of great work that's done on it. I encourage anyone to look up last universal common ancestor and look at that information there. There's it's theorizing because we're talking about an event that occurred, you know, four billion years ago and it was molecular. So we can only intuit it from looking at extant living organisms. So it's a tough question, but the people who are working on it are doing a diligent job. And, you know, I I think that, that there's some really interesting work being done there.
2: You got it, thanks. And one last one. This one from Cordial Contender says, what is the most important discovery or technology that we have thanks to creationism, T-Rock?
1: Um, the most important discovery? I, I'm, I'm going to kind of generalize this just a little bit, but I think very important medical advances are, are based on a creation perspective. And I say that because... Um, if, if you look at the history of science, uh, scientific progress in the medical field as, as regards evolution, they have done these bizarre things like say, oh, the appendix is vestigial. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not naive to the fact that the uh, definition of vestigial has changed over time. Um, and, and they've also done things like, oh, junk DNA is is the, the latest and greatest, you know, 80 percent or some number I heard like that um, uh, just yesterday or the day before. Um, whereas the creationist does not approach things like that. They say, oh, that appendix was there for a specific reason. And lo and behold, we find a reason eventually, um, as, as genetics goes, um, and, and DNA function, you, you, you got to get people to nail down a little bit. What do you, what are you calling functional? Um, is it only protein coding? Is it only something you can identify, regulates a developmental process or something like that? Um, bottom line is, um. In, in the field of genetics and, and that sort of thing, creationists um, have have basically pushed leaps and bounds by taking the, the more appropriate position that, that what you find in the genome is there for a reason. So if, if, if you want to name a particular uh, technology that was advanced um, by a creation scientist directly, the gene gun was developed by a creationist.
2: You got it. And with that, I want to give a huge thank you to our guests. My dear friends, please give a huge round of applause at home to Dr. Thompson and T-Rock. We really do appreciate you guys for real. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys tonight. Yeah, it's been Thanks fun. Thanks,
1: James. Are we going to give yeah. closing statements or anything? Oh, that was actually,
2: we uh, usually just wrap up with the dialogue okay. and then the Q&A. Yeah. Fair enough. That's fine. But yeah. I do want to say, I'm going to be back in just a moment, folks, for my own kind of closing statement, which will be like a lightning fast two-minute post credit scene on upcoming debates, So stick around for that. But like I said, Dr. Thompson's link is in the description box for that post debate show. So I want you to open that up right now. And I would recommend the same for T-Rock. T-Rock doesn't have a link at the moment. So I want to say we, we want to plug all of our guests, regardless of what their position is, is we do want to be as neutral as possible. So in the meantime, open up that Dr. Thompson link from the description box that is right down there below. So right now I see it for sure. It is Dr. Chris Thompson, and it's at pretty much the very top of the description box there. So I'll be back in just a moment with a post-credit scene. So stick around for that two-minute post-credit scene on Upcoming Debates.
1: James, just a quick word. I am not a content creator, so I don't have a link to share. Um, most, most of the stuff I've done is is just being hosted as a guest on, on shows like yours. So, no problem. Um, standing for truth is where the majority of my um, debates have been, so I apologize. I, I'm not going to have a link to share.
2: No problem. Definitely not a requirement. A lot of people come on and they're just like, hey, I just love to debate. I don't have a link. And so with that, I'll be back in just a moment. So stick around. And thanks one last time to Dr. Chris Thompson, as well as T-Rock. It's been a true pleasure.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today